So a couple weeks ago, when we last were in Genesis, we talked about how God disinherited the nations, how he uh, gets to this place where he decides working with the peoples of the whole world isn't going to be the plan. And he's going to focus his plan of redemption on one family, the family of Abram. The other nations we talked about are put under the care of spiritual powers that end up not governing them well, and they create chaos and destruction. Uh, And that this is the third of three major problems that Genesis presents. First of all is human rebellion in Genesis 3, and then spiritual evil in Genesis 6, and then the nations being put under the control of the sons of God in Genesis 10 and 11. So today, what we're going to focus on is the story of what actually brings about this situation in which God gives the nations over and focuses his work on Abraham. We're going to talk about how this, the reality of what happens here carries forward into the New Testament, how it shapes the message of the gospel, and maybe how we can apply some of it today. Uh, the most of chapter 11 is another genealogy. If you, if you think about um, the word toledot, remember we, we said that every time there's a toledot, these are the records of statement. It, it's a different section. There's going to be two of those in that genealogy, the, the family records of Shem and the family records of Terah. We're not going to focus on that other than to say this is the genealogy that carries us from the table of nations all the way through to Abram, whose story is going to pick up in chapter 12. So let's take a look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So if we were maybe unsure about what kind of story this is going to be, we're given a clue by the word Shinar, the land of Shinar. This is, this is our, our little light bulb that, uh-oh, something bad's going to happen. If we remember Nimrod back in chapter 10, Nimrod was called a gibor, a man of uh, a wicked leader before the flood. They were the giborim. They were the men of renown. And, and Nimrod is called a gibor as well. In Genesis 10, we read, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be a powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That's why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So this is this, this man who is powerful, who is audacious, who is arrogant, he is violent, and he, makes, he sets out to make a name for himself. And he is the founder of the city of Babylon. If you're familiar with the the Tower of Babel, the word Babel is the same word that is used everywhere else in the Bible for the word Babylon. This is the the city we're talking about. And in verse 3, we read, they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So there's this little expla- explanatory like brick-making comment. If we remember, Moses is writing to the children of Israel. That where have they been for the last 400 years? Egypt right? 
And how do they build buildings in Egypt? With giant stones. They cut them out of quarries and they drag them and they build them. And this is not how building worked in Mesopotamia. We know this from archaeology that they took mud and they formed bricks. And so Moses is saying, you know, you guys don't know this because you've been building buildings out of stone, but this is how brick making in Mesopotamia worked. John Walton writes, as early as the late Uruk period at the end of the fourth millennium BC, we see the development of kiln-fired brick. Furthermore, as the text indicates, the usual mortar used with this kiln-fired brick was a bitumen-based mastic. This is a petroleum product. The CSB translates as asphalt. This combination of baked brick and bitumen mastic made for waterproof buildings as sturdy as stone. The time required to fire the bricks and to procure the bitumen made this an expensive procedure. As a result, only the most important buildings were constructed with these materials. So it begs the question, what are they building? Most likely what they're building is a temple complex and something called a ziggurat. Again, Walton says, in the early stages of urbanization, the city was not designed to house the private sector. People did not live in the city. Instead, it was comprised of the public buildings, which were mostly connected with the temple. Consequently, the city was, in fact, in effect, a temple complex. So I have a picture here of, um, this is a Google Maps uh, image that I took uh, this week. This is Babylon. Um, up there, that like spirally thing, that's Saddam Hussein's old palace. There's the old city of Babylon. But then in the bottom corner, there's this square thing. That's the ruins of something called Itemenanki, which is a giant ziggurat, which is a, um, a pyramid. And it was, we know that it was built, it's in ruins now, but it was built um, in its last uh, current form by King Nebuchadnezzar. If you've read... Um, ancient Babylonian history, or if you've read the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon for a period of time, and he liked to build things. And we have some artifacts where he writes down that he found this site of this ziggurat, and uh, it was in ruins. And so he decided to rebuild it. This is a artist's representation of what a ziggurat would look like. You've probably seen things like this before. Ziggurats are not hollow like the pyramids. If you study Egyptology, you know that the pyramids are filled with all these underground rooms. Ziggurats have one main room at the top, and in that room is a bed and a dining table made for a god. This ziggurat is not the temple. The temple in Babylonian religion is down at the bottom in the temple complex. And what the ziggurat is for is it's built specifically as a conduit between heaven and earth. And it's used to lure the God down into the temple by giving the God like a tasty meal and a place to lay down his head in this this bedroom upstairs so that they can bring the God down and meet the God's needs so that the God will bless them. These ziggurats pop up all over Mesopotamia. In Genesis, we read that they're building a building with its top in the sky. Ziggurats were meant to reach into the heavenly realm, the place where the gods live. Atemenanki means temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. There's another ziggurat in a, in a city called Larsa, and its name means temple which links heaven and earth. Another one in Sippar is called the temple of the stairway to pure heaven. 
So the entire idea of Mesopotamian religion is to build this structure into the heavens and put some tasty food in the tops to lure the God down so that he would bless the people. The people of Babylon are trying to get into the heavenly realm. And we saw this in Genesis 6 when the inhabitants of heaven, the sons of God, they illegitimately come down to earth and marry the daughters of men. And we see how God responds to that. Now we see the inhabitants of the earth illegitimately trying to get up to heaven and manipulate God. And so the Babylon story is one where we see a culture come together, represented by the wicked character of Nimrod, its founder, and they set out to say, we're going to do this heaven and earth project. We're going we're to make this thing happen all by ourselves. We're going to bring Yahweh under our control. We're going to lure him into our temple so that he will do our bidding. And we're going to make a name for ourselves by doing it. It's filled with pride, but it's the pride of an entire culture. So what happens? Verse five, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them through the earth and they stopped building the city. So there's kind of a there's kind of a little joke built into here. Like they're building this tower with which to reach the heavens. And what's God's perspective? Like he can barely see it. So like, you know, we should go down there and see what they're up to. Like we know that's not how God works. God is everywhere and God sees everything. But the way the story is painted, it's like God's going, what are those humans doing down there in their tiny little tower? It's this insignificant little thing to God. And so who is, who is God talking to? Who is Yahweh talking to? This is the second time in Genesis we've seen this. We saw it in Genesis chapter one. Let us go down. It's easy to say, well, obviously he's talking about the Trinity because that's who we are. We're Christians who have a view of God as a triune being, a three in one sort of being. But it's more likely that Yahweh is talking to the members of his divine council, the other lesser spiritual beings that he has at his disposal to do the work of governing the universe. And he says, the humans have started something that if left unchecked, will reap unimaginable destruction. They're they're united in this and anything they put their minds to, they'll be able to accomplish. And this this calls back to what we saw in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis 3, 22, we read, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. We see that, that God pushes the humans out of the garden and in doing so, they're going to be away from his life-giving presence and they're going to die. And this is a bad thing, but he prefers that they leave and that they die and he deals with death rather than letting them stay in the garden, continue to live and be forever and ever broken and wicked. And it's the same kind of 
thing that's happening in Genesis 11. Rather than letting the people united as one culture continue down this road of destruction and pride, I'm going to scatter them, not because I want the people to be scattered, but because it's going to be better in the long run to deal with them as a scattered set of nations than it will be to let them be the way they are now. So God instantly creates a multitude of cultures based around diverse language that are unable to cooperate with one another to complete the project. They can't speak the same language, they can't communicate, and so they can't build. And as we read last time in Deuteronomy 32, he hands all these nations over to the care of lesser gods. Verse 9, therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This is the beginning of a city that comes to represent all of the brokenness and sinfulness and worldly power that is opposed to the work of God all throughout the Bible. Tim Mackey says that Babylon represents a failed and distorted human attempt to unify the human family around the wrong story, which is elevating one city's name to be the thing that you will, will unite us all. Babylon becomes the pinnacle of ethnocentric violence against the kingdom of God throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah is writing to the king of Babylon and he says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the earth. I will ascend above the highest clouds, I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. Maybe you're familiar with that section of Isaiah being referenced as a, um, a, a word against the devil, a word against Satan, uh, against Lucifer. And that might be true, but it's couched in this word against Babylon, because Babylon as a system, as a power, represents all of the violence of the world. Tim Mackey again says, core to the national mythology of many people groups was that they are the real humanity that comes from the gods and the rest of the people are subhuman. We talked about this in earlier chapters of Genesis. The Babylonian creation story sets up a world in which Babylon is founded by the gods and all the other people are less than. And Genesis speaks into that a completely different story that says, no, all the people of the world are made in the image of the God of the universe. But this is what Babylon believed about itself, that it was superior, that it was better, and that was its justification for mercilessly conquering the world. This Babylon idea, if we continue to read, and we don't have time to go through all of it, but if you read through the prophets, and if you read through the New Testament, and if you read through the book of Revelation over and over and over again, this idea of Babylon rising up in pride and arrogance and superiority and conquering, it's imprinted on every single world empire that follows it all the way up through what I would say is the world empire that will be on the scene when Jesus returns. 
So, this is the problem in Genesis 11. The nations come together to manipulate God, and God scatters them. What's the solution? Well, for that, we have to turn to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find Jesus, the snake crusher, the one who was promised to come and fix all of the wrong in the world. He has come to pay the penalty for human sin, and he's defeated the powers and principalities through his death and his resurrection. He commissions his followers in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is calling his church to get about the work of regathering the nations to Yahweh. In Acts 2, you're in a community group with us. You went through Acts 2 a couple weeks ago. Acts 2 is the beginning of that mission. In Acts 2, verse 1, we read, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Luke does something really interesting here. Luke is a student of the Old Testament, and his Bible was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What he does is he chooses some very specific words to share his story of Pentecost that ties it back to the Babylon story. He says that tongues like flames of fire separated and rested on each one of them. This is not a common word, but it is used to talk about how God separated the nations. The people learned to speak in different tongues, just like different tongues are represented in Babel. And the crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard him speaking in his own language. It's the same word as the people being confused in the Babel story. Luke is keying us into the idea that what is happening in Acts is connected to what happened in Genesis. We read on in Acts 2, they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us can hear them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors are from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So I've got a map here of the nations of Pentecost. I know it's small. I apologize for that. But we start over in Arabia or over in Mesopotamia with the Parthians and the Medes and Elam and Mesopotamia. And it goes, this list goes from east to west all the way to Rome. Some of the people that heard the gospel in Acts 2, they stayed in Jerusalem. But many of them, after the day of Pentecost, they went back to their homes in all of these nations, and they brought the good news of Jesus to the nations that they were living in. 
And so Jesus' mandate to make disciples of all nations, it gets off, theoretically, to a really great start. So I want to show you another map. This is a little bigger map. This is the map from Genesis 10, the table of nations. We looked at this last time we gathered. There are 70 nations on this map and the geographic territory that these nations represent overlays on top of the nations at Pentecost. And there is a nation represented in Pentecost for every single nation on this map except for one. And it's this one right there. It's a nation called Tarshish. Who can, who can shout out where Tarshish is today? Spain. One, one nation that doesn't get covered in Pentecost. It's Spain. So then we start thinking about the Apostle Paul. Paul is a Jewish man. He's a Bible scholar. He knows his Bible inside and out. And what is Paul's goal? In Romans 15, we read, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. What a weird place to want to go, Paul. You've got all this work to do around the Mediterranean and you want to go to Spain? Who even lives in Spain? Unless Paul recognizes that the whole plan of God kicked off in Genesis 12 when Abraham is told, all nations will be blessed through you, comes to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and his work of freeing all the nations under the rule of the powers and principalities through his death and his resurrection and unites them all into God's new remade family called the church. Paul saw his mission as the apostle to the nations. Remember, I think we talked about it last time. Anytime you see the word Gentiles in the New Testament, the word is nations. And he sees himself as having a role to play in making sure members of every human family scattered and disinherited at Babel are brought back into the family of God. This is how Paul applies this idea to the non-Jewish Christians at the church of Ephesus. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. 
He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit." So Paul sees a part of the work of the gospel and a part of his calling as an apostle as bringing people, the nations disinherited at Babel, back into the united family of God. And it's a big deal for Paul. Listen to what we read in Galatians. Paul has been in, in, the, in the churches of Galatia ministering to them. And he says, but when Cephas, who's a, it's another name for the apostle Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles, the nations, before certain men came from James, Jewish Christians. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. When the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But then I saw that they were, when they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? He doesn't say Peter was being rude or clicky. He was, by his actions, denying the very heart of the gospel. The nations being reborn into the people of God is Jesus' solution to one of the big three problems that Genesis tells us the world has. And this is of primary importance to the Apostle Paul. So if we are people in the lineage of the apostles, like like Paul says, and we want to be people who walk in the truth of the gospel, what does it mean to bring reconciliation to the nations as part of our making disciples today? I want to talk a little bit about ethnic reconciliation. Ethnic reconciliation is a consequence of the good news of Jesus. God separates the nations because of the wickedness at Babel, but his ultimate goal is to bring them all back together in one human family. Today, we often use the word race and racism. Uh, Shai Lin, in his book, The New Reformation, I think makes a helpful point. He says, usually in our context, when people mention race, they're actually talking about ethnicity. The problem with the idea of race as it has been used historically is that it was socially constructed as a way to justify slavery in America. Lynn, in his book, which there's several copies in our library, I highly recommend it. He makes a strong case for having a biblical framework in this area rather than one imposed on us from the culture. At one point in his book, he goes on to outline several categories of specifically ethnic sin that the church is called because of the gospel to stand against. Since ethnic disunity 
And sin is directly connected to the Babel event. And because it's also this really important topic in our culture today, I wanna go through those different kinds of sin briefly. He has six categories in his book. The first one is ethnic hatred. This is like, think of the Ku Klux Klan. Think of the Nazis. Humans uh, that, that, that just hate other people because of who they are. In the Bible, we see Haman hates the Jews just because they're the Jews in the book of Esther. In in the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah doesn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because he just hates the Assyrians. This is ethnic hatred. Ethnic pride is number two. Lynn says, a subtler sin than ethnic hatred. Ethnic pride is when a person has feelings of superiority concerning the ethnic group they belong to. This is often accompanied by viewing other ethnic groups as inferior. Modern examples of this are as blatant as the black Hebrew Israelites or as subtle as a condescending comment made by an American homeowner to the immigrant worker who does her landscaping. In God's word, we see Goliath taunting Israel because he has ethnic pride. He thinks he's better All throughout the New Testament, we see the Jews and the Gentiles not getting along because the Jews, they think they're better than everyone else. Ethnic favoritism, uh, Lynn says, the practice of giving unjust preferential treatment to one person or group on the basis of their ethnicity. In 2020, there was a lawsuit filed against Wells Fargo for discriminating against thousands of black job applicants. They settled out of court and paid large sums of money to the men and women that they sinned against. And there's this idea in our culture, though, today that that ethnic favoritism is a sin that can only be committed against someone of a minority culture. But that's not a biblical idea either. Sin is sin, and all of us are infected with it in different ways. I know I've talked with some of you who have been told by your employers that you would be perfect for a raise or a promotion, but your skin is the wrong color. That is ethnic favoritism, and it is sin. We see it in Galatians when Peter shows up to Antioch and eats with everyone until the Jews show up, and then he's afraid of his reputation. He doesn't want everyone to see that he's eating with the Gentiles. It's playing favorites. Number four is ethnic oppression. Ethnic oppression is the unjust or cruel exercise of power or authority toward a person or people on the basis of their ethnicity. We could look at this displacement of the Native Americans in the United States or chattel slavery as well. This is an interesting one because if you read the stories of slave owners, not all slave owners hated their slaves. Many of them loved their slaves, but they still oppressed them. The Israelites are oppressed by the Egyptians in Egypt. They are used for their labor. Number five, ethnic idolatry. Ethnic idolatry is elevating one's own ethnicity or someone else's to a place that causes the person to break the law of God. Forbidding your child to marry another Christian because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. 
Lynn says, ethnic idolatry can also occur when a person's love for another ethnicity is so great that it causes them to hate themselves or people from their own ethnicity. It's a fairly famous story of Rachel Dolazel from Spokane. She was the chapter president of the NAACP there until it came out that she was actually a white woman pretending to be black because she had so much contempt for who she was She wanted to pretend to be someone else. In scripture, we see Miriam and Aaron criticize Moses because he marries a Cushite woman, someone of another ethnicity. Lastly, sixth category is ethnic neglect. It occurs when a person fails to care properly for another person because of their ethnicity. The white police officers that stood by watching Rodney King being beaten in 1991 are an example of this. Or subsequently in the following year, when those officers were acquitted and the LA riots began, the black people who stood by watching Reginald Denny get pulled from his truck and beaten by a black mob solely because he was a white man. Thankfully, a group of um, African-Americans in the neighborhood were watching that go down on TV and they came out of their homes and rescued him. The Good Samaritan in the scriptures is a powerful story of the reversal of this kind of sin where the Samaritan who is at odds with the Jewish man doesn't neglect this man because of his ethnicity. So why do I bring this up? Why are these important things for us to think about? I hope it's helpful in in showing that there are many ways that ethnic sin and division play out in our world today, sometimes even in the church. Maybe as I've read through these categories, you are maybe saying, I'm not a racist, I don't hate people, but maybe some of these attitudes are you've seen in your life. And ethnic sin is a sin that doesn't just harm individuals, it's targeted at members of entire Groups and it's often experienced collectively by those groups. Ethnic sin reeks of the pride and the arrogance of Babylon. And when a group primarily finds its identity and purpose in itself, these kinds of sins are not far behind. And so I would ask the question, are the powers and principalities that have been disarmed by Jesus through the cross and his resurrection, yet still doing everything they can to cause chaos in our world, are they making use of ethnic conflict to hurt people? Absolutely. And as we read Paul, this is utterly outside the truth of the gospel. And so as Christians, we need to be aware of these kinds of things. And as a continuation of the ministry of the apostles, we need to work towards the gospel bringing men and women from all nations into the kingdom, restoring unity through the spirit of Christ. So maybe you're thinking like, well, that's fine, but we're a bunch of white people and we live in North Idaho, most of us. And maybe it seems just a little disconnected to talk about ethnic sin. But the first thing I would say is we're all connected to a wider world, aren't we? We all have our news feeds and our TVs and we know what's going on in the world. And and no matter what the issue is, as Christians, we should think rightly about it. But the other thing is that 
we have a recent history in our cities of grave ethnic sin, and it still casts a fog over this place. My family moved here in 1986, and my parents were counseled by friends and family, do not move to Coeur d'Alene because they are a racist. See, long before uh, Kim and Kanye vacationed here, Coeur d'Alene was on the map for being the home of the Aryan nations, a neo-Nazi white supremacist group. They had a compound in Hayden for decades. And when we moved to Coeur d'Alene, we moved with my little sister, who's Korean. Now, thankfully, we were, by and large, accepted in this city. But the Aryan Nations compound wasn't dismantled in Hayden until the year 2000. And I, I can't imagine that everything associated with that mindset and the, and the demonic activity that that was just evaporated on that day. The weird reality, I think, is that my sister cannot remember a time when she experienced ethnic sin against her until 2020, when people coming in to the hospital where she worked called her names simply because of the color of her skin. This kind of thing lives on everywhere, but it lives on here. And we have to be aware of it. And we have to push the light of the gospel into it. And I would ask the question, why isn't our community more ethnically diverse? Now, I don't think we should be condemning ourselves because Coeur d'Alene is 93% white. I don't think that's um, a sin in and of itself, but it, it, it is an interesting question. Why don't more ethnic minorities feel at home in our area? How much of it has to do with ethnic sin that lives in our past? How much of it has to do with ethnic sin that is committed even today in our cities? Ethnic reconciliation under the loving care of God as his people, it's one of the three problems in Genesis that Jesus' work answers. We saw human rebellion in chapter three. We saw spiritual evil in chapter six, and we saw the division of the nations in 10 and 11. And Jesus comes and he saves us from our own personal sin. He makes our relationship with God whole. He defeats the powers and the principalities by taking the fight to the grave, not allowing death to hold him and rising from the dead. And he frees the people of the world to be invited into the family of God as adopted sons and daughters. This is one of the works of the gospel that Jesus 
is about. And it's one of the works of the gospel that we as his people should be about. And so my question for all of us, and, and I, don't, I don't have good answers for this, but what does it look like for us to be agents of ethnic reconciliation in our city today as part of the work of the gospel in our lives? Any questions this morning? Does anybody feel like being brave and just like raising their hand? Bryn. Yeah. Sons. Yeah, I mean, we nobody knows for sure, but that's kind of seems like what the text is saying is that there's something about what happened with the family that they just stopped over there. And they didn't. They didn't continue to go on until later. Yeah, that's good. Any other questions? Here comes one. Let's see, what does this say? How would you speak to someone who takes the Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 out of context to justify that slavery can be justified? Let's see, what does Ephesians 6 say? Hmm. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work while only being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Wouldn't you agree that the generalized church could be representing the Tower of Babel mindset today and that we, the church, care more about our individual or political issues over the purpose and place of the Holy Spirit leading our conversation and purpose? What do we do with this? Yeah, so the first thing about the, the, what's called the household codes. Paul has them in a couple of his letters. He has instructions for husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters. Uh, because typically in a Greco-Roman household, you would have all of those people in the home and generally they would have all become Christians. And so typically in a household code, um, Paul's not the only one that does this. All of the Greek philosophers had household codes. They would all be addressed to the head of the family, uh, it was called the pater familias, the husband, the, the man in charge. He would be given all of the rights and Everyone else in the family would be told how they were to serve him. He's the only one that's really important. What Paul does is he comes along and takes that same format, the household codes, and he turns it on his head. He gives husbands 
rights and responsibilities, but he also gives wives rights and responsibilities, which was not heard of. He gives fathers rights and responsibilities, but he also gives children rights and responsibilities. And then he comes to slaves and masters, and slaves in the Greco-Roman world were property. They were not considered people. And so a master had absolute authority and control over his slave to do whatever he wanted to up to kill them for whatever reason. And so what Paul does is he comes in and he says something radically different. He says, slaves joyfully obey your masters as a service to Christ. And then he says, masters, you're responsible for taking care of your slaves. And what this immediately does is it puts these two classes of people on the same footing. In a church gathering in the first century, slaves and masters would both attend the gathering and they would both take from the communion table as equals. And while Paul in Ephesians, he doesn't say, slaves, you should run away from your masters. He doesn't say, masters, you should free your slaves. What he does is he sets up a scenario where oppressing another person becomes really, really awkward. And so as slaves and masters pursue the gospel together in the community, the result of this, and we know it happens throughout church history, is that it doesn't make sense to have this slave-master relationship anymore. And if you read through the book of Philemon, this is Paul's treatise on slavery in the New Testament. Philemon is a slave owner. And Paul says, hey, your slave Onesimus, he has come to faith in Christ and he is now your brother and you should let him go. You should treat him like a brother and not as a slave. And some, so sometimes people read the New Testament and they, they're mad because Paul didn't get up and say, slavery is evil and it must be abolished. But Paul didn't say a lot of things. And Paul primarily wanted to work in a culture to bring the influence of the gospel as deep as he possibly could. An example I've heard before that maybe shed some light on this issue is that if Paul came into your town and said the gospel of Jesus demands that you give up electricity every, in every instance of your life, every, every use of electricity is bad and wrong and you need to stop doing it. That's how primary the slave economy was in the Roman Empire. Now, that doesn't mean that it was good. That doesn't mean that it was right. It just means that everybody was so embedded in it that to show up and say, cut it off right now, would have been a very hard pill to swallow. So I don't, I don't know that I'm qualified to sit in judgment over Paul as to his strategy, but the reality is over the last 2,000 years, his strategy continues to pay off. In society after society after society that has the gospel presented to them, the institution of slavery, and sometimes it takes a long time and we had a war over it, so I don't wanna you know, paint that as a nice rosy picture, but over time, people who are saturated in the gospel go like, this owning other people thing doesn't make any sense with what I believe about Jesus. 
And that's been the testimony of church history over the centuries. Was that the right thing for Paul to do? Should Paul have taken a harder stance on these issues? I don't know. But for somebody to say during the American Civil War, use these texts to continue to justify slavery shows that they were very out of step with the gospel. And there were, and you can read, if you're into history, you can read many, many critiques of that kind of theology by abolitionist theologians that were pointing out that the whole trajectory of freedom in Christ shows that the institution of slavery is immoral. Your question about the church having a Tower of Babel mindset. I think I think we all have a Tower of Babel mindset. And I say that because like it's it's really become a kind of national pastime in the church to criticize the church. And, and we should be critical of ourselves. We should, we should bring ourselves under the authority of God's word and say, are we living up to be the kinds of people that we're being called to be? But a lot of the problems that we're recognizing as problems in the church, they're just human problems. The reality is, is as, as sinful people, we bring those problems into the church with us, whether it's, I mean, you want to talk about the sexual abuse scandals that rock the church, which are awful and evil and need to be rooted out. But there's an equal number of sexual abuse scandals outside the church. The common refrain that, that Christians are hypocrites. Absolutely, we are hypocrites. But everybody else are hypocrites too. And so... Yeah, we're in danger of being proud, of being arrogant, of being insular, of creating institutions that um, keep other people out. We're, we're, we're in danger of trying to manipulate God, maybe not but with a ziggurat and a weird bed and a table of fruit. But how many of us are guilty of trying to get God to do what we want instead of submitting to his rule over our lives? And so I think for, for us to read the Tower of Babel story and go like, we need to be people that look different, I think that's absolutely true and absolutely appropriate. But we need to be different, not, not because we're specifically worse, but because the whole world operates this way. The whole of culture operates in the, who is the in-group and who is the out-group. And we make these differentiations. Maybe they're ethnic differentiations. Maybe they're gender-based. Maybe they're, um, they're sexual orientation-based. There's all kinds of ways that we divide ourselves up into the good guys and the bad guys. But in the church, we're called to something different. And so the, the call for us is that not that we're specifically worse in some way than the rest of the world, but that we're empowered by the gospel and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to be different. When, um, when Jesus instituted communion, he was having a Passover dinner with his disciples Passover was this uh, celebration that represented the freedom of the people from Israel out of the oppression of the Egyptians. 
And he says in Matthew 26, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One of the purposes of the meal that we share with one another is the reminder that we are headed together towards the fully realized kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is happening now, but it's not quite done yet. The powers have been disarmed, but they're still fighting back. The gospel has been proclaimed, but there are still people to draw into the kingdom. Here's how the great city at the center of the kingdom of God is described in Revelation. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I love this picture because it is not a picture of uniformity. It is a picture of unity. All of the nations and tribes and tongues that are redeemed in the book of Revelation are still themselves. They're still who they are and they bring their unique gifts and lay them at the feet of Jesus, united as people of the Lamb. All of the nations participate together and they worship him with the best parts of who they are as unique expressions of the kingdom of God, of the image of God. So as we take communion, as we remember the body and blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins to bring us life, I would just encourage you to reflect on both the unity of the body of Christ and the diversity that he is creating as he draws people into his kingdom. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.